Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome to the Agent and Wealth Podcast. On today's show, we have a special guest, Brian Tolles, the president of KTT Global Advisors, which is a full-service financial consulting firm that assists individuals and businesses with their tax, business advisory, and accountant needs. Brian also has a specialty as a virtual CFO and cryptocurrency expert, which we'll get into a little bit later. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. So I read your bio, and you have experience on a wide range of businesses, large and small, but you got your start out in Silicon Valley? Yeah. So uh, my, my quick background is I grew up on the East Coast. I went to grad school in Michigan and then decided I wanted to go out to California and work in the, the high-tech industry. I had two options when I graduated. One was for IBM. One was for Hewlett Packard. <laughs> IBM job was in Rochester, Minnesota. Okay. I interviewed there and it was eight below zero. <laughs> and then I interviewed with HP and it was 70. So I picked the one. Easy where, decision. Yeah, it was an easy decision. So did you go from HP to one to startups? or? Well, yeah. So when I got out there in 97, things were uh, heating up in the dot-com space, and I, I got recruited out of HP by a former boss and worked at a company called Alta Vista, which uh, I describe as Google before Google was right. Google. Um, so I had, I had my fun there, didn't make any money, and then I kind of caught the startup bug. I liked the idea that you could get involved in a lot of things at a company and learn a lot of things, and they're really quick-moving. But uh, like a lot of people in the Silicon Valley, I cycled through a ton of jobs. I probably had seven or eight jobs when I was out there. And when I finally left, I had finished up a, uh, a stint as a public company CFO. Okay. It was a great experience. Now, I know we, we both actually have math undergrad degrees. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> did you, was that what you, did you want to work in the, or think about getting the degree and working in finance or in the accounting space or did you just kind of I knew I was a numbers guy and, right. you know, I don't know about you back then. I was just, I found something that worked for me. I ended up going to a very liberal arts school, which from a math perspective was probably a mistake because they taught you a lot of theory, which, um, yeah, I'm a smart guy, but it was a little over right. my head. So I took a minor in computer science, and the only problem with that is that they taught uh, programming in a language called Pascal, which is considered, I think, a teaching language. So when I graduated in 1990 uh, in a crappy economy, knowing how to program in Pascal, and I tried to get a job, people were like, yeah, you know, something we can't do much with you. So my first job out of college was to be a dishwasher at a restaurant. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And then it was up, up from there. Nice. <laughs> and so did you like working out in Silicon Valley on the West Coast? Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, for the reasons I described, and then also the, and people underestimate the value of having nice weather. And right. when you just can get up in the morning, you don't have to worry about what it's going to be like out. It just boosts your spirits. And you know, I grew up in the Boston area. And back then, well, the Silicon Valley didn't really exist the way it is now. But Boston was considered the high-tech hub. And I've always wondered, well, why, why did Boston not quite take off like the Silicon Valley did? And it's the weather. Right. People, people are like, where am I going to go? Am I going to freeze my butt off in Boston or am I going to go to California? Nice weather. Yeah. So, yeah, I did a couple stints at, at startups. And I think one thing you, you notice is you better be on your toes because they can pivot quick with what their business model is. Mm -hmm. And so it, it definitely was a great learning experience. Yeah. And as a finance guy, 
Um, one of my things, one of the things you have to do when you work in a corporation is pull together a budget. And I hate, I hated budgeting. And the reason was because when you're working at a startup, you put all this work into budgeting and two months later it's obsolete. Right. <laughs> because like you said, all right, we're going in this direction now. It was fun. And, you know, you talk about a broad range of experience. You get to wear so many different hats. From what I do, finance, tax, accounting, as a CFO, you get into the other administrative functions. So there's a lot to learn. And from there, you came back to the East Coast or did you make a stop after that? Uh, no, I came out here just to get back closer to family. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had had a good run in corporate. I found that I kind of done everything that I, I wanted to working full-time in a corporate space. So I was like, well, you know, I've got a lot of good experience. I actually sat for the CPA exam, which okay. is something that most people do in their 20s when they <laughs> do it. I kind of did it in reverse. I did my MBA first and then my CPA. So I sat for the CPA exam, passed that, got my license. And then I said, all right, I need to be able to get people to pay me to do something. Right. Well, they're not going to pay me to sit in the office and sit in meetings, but they will pay me to do things like accounting and taxes. So my focus has been picking up on the tax side and then also supporting companies in, you know, their finance and accounting needs at a sort of a level above a bookkeeper. I can do some bookkeeping and I do do some bookkeeping, but really a virtual CFO is good for companies that, you know, they're small, they need a higher level skill set than maybe uh, an accountant can provide, but they don't have the, the budget or the need for a, a full-time CFO. So at, at what level would a company, is there a certain revenue, a certain growth, a certain number of employees that a company would decide, yes, it probably makes sense that. I think it really depends on the complexity of your organization more than anything else. I mean, you can have very small companies that, you know, they're, they've got uh, international client base, they've got, um, you know, they're negotiating complicated contracts, they're having to... Um, you know, deal with investors that need uh, specific reporting or creditors that need certain reporting and covenants adhered to, and you need some senior leadership. So that could be a small company. And then obviously when you get up into large multi-million dollar companies, then they need somebody solely focused on that role. So what do you, what would you do as a virtual CFO? What are some of the things that you help a business with? What I like to say is I do I do whatever, whatever a CFO does. I just am not on site usually. And I'm not necessarily full time. I might be in there temporarily. I mean, the, the idea of a virtual CFO to me strictly means you're virtual. You're not, you're not physically present, but I really think it means you know, any sort of role that is not full time permanent in the office. And so I've got clients where I've helped them out for three months on a, a more uh, intensive basis. And then others that I'm, you know, I'm giving them five to 10 hours a month for the last couple of years. So it really depends on need. You know, they, they know that they've got someone who's been around the block, so to speak, and done a lot of the more senior types of things that a, a CFO would do. So would you help the company out with things like putting a budget together, some planning, analysis, reporting, those types of things? Yeah, all, all sorts of stuff like that. And, um, you know, I can dip into legal light, though I'm not an attorney, I can, obviously, I've got the knowledge of the accounting side, which is really, you know, it's the foundation for for a business from a finance perspective. It's just getting the books right. I know the rules have dealt with uh, both international and, and domestic accounting standards. Uh, I've done SEC reporting. I've worked with investors, VC investors, and 
you know, cap tables and fundraising and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's really need dependent. One thing I do is, you know, you do as well. We go to these meetups and network with people. And, you know, I'll talk to, when I go into the city, sometimes I'll talk to entrepreneurs and you go up there and like, all right, hey, what are you working on? And what do you need? What, what, what are your needs? That's usually a good way to figure out what they actually might need help with. One, one thing they always say is, uh, I need I need money. Can you raise money for it? I'm like, no. <laughs> That's your job. I can help. I can provide the backup. I can help you present, but you need to have the contacts and be able to pitch the product. You'd be surprised actually how many times I get that question. Yeah. As well. Like people looking for help. Yeah. With finding investors. Yeah. But do you, would you help actually, like, if someone wanted to create a pitch book or something like yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. And I've done that, too. I've pitched Wall Street and Sand Hill Road in my capacity. And so it's, you know, it's definitely something I can do. But, you know, it's, it's a compliment to a CEO. If the CEO can't pitch their own company, then, you know, it's a problem. Yeah. So what, what do you do when, because I imagine you come across a lot where the CEO or the president doesn't even know what they need help with. How do you start an engagement with, with someone? Do you kind of just ask them questions, be consultative, figure out, try and figure out where they are, where, where they need help, and kind of present that these are the areas that I think... Yeah, I mean, working, you know, I've worked at small companies, I've worked at large companies, and you get a sense over time as to, you know, what the various needs are at certain stages of growth. In my case, sometimes people come to me with specific projects. I need this done. I need evaluation done. I need a business plan. And I did a business plan for a client. And it was really, right, here's this idea I have. I've got an investor. Good. But I don't really know what the business looks like from a financial perspective. So you, you know, you talk about, you know, helping them think through these things. And I basically had to model out revenue streams, uh, document all the, the various costs and expenses and you know, build a financial model for the business. I mean, that's that's one thing you can do. Another thing is that they just need someone to sort of oversee, keep things organized. I've got companies that I support that they want to do their accounting, but they want somebody at the end of the quarter that can go in there and look at their financials, make sure that they've got everything accounted for, answer any tax questions, any HR light, again, uh, I can answer questions or about that, but just have somebody that's got that vast knowledge base. And so is that more on like the advisory side of things? Will yeah. You, will you get questions where someone will say, oh, well, um, I think I'm about hiring this person, which is going to cost this much. Can we afford it or can it be put into the budget? Will you get into that? Yeah. Specific yeah. I mean, definitely. You know, I, again, I provide the, the structure for them to be able to make those decisions. I'm not going to tell them what they can and can't do, but I'm going to say, you know, based on what we've talked about, based on the on the forecast we put in place, if you do that, then here's what the impact. Is. Yeah, here's the impact. You're you're going to push out profitability. You're going to trip your covenants. You're going to yeah. you know do something. And that's really what one of the main roles of a senior finance person is: is just to have financial money based visibility on the business. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned a lot of companies are looking to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, do you also help help on the debt side? I've, I have raised debt. It's a similar process. You're creating a pitch deck. You're going usually going out to a different set of funders. Yeah, and and that's you know that's one of the, the decisions. The cap, the whole cap structure decision is one that latter stage founders will struggle with. It's like, all right, you know, what do I do? I worked at a company once where they basically tapped out their 
their ability to raise equity. Their existing funders didn't want to put any more money into the company, not that it was a bad company. So we said, all right, let's go out and see if we can raise some debt to carry the business over to to profitability or profitability or a liquidity event or something. So that's what we did. You know, that sort of decision is like, what's the proper balance of debt and equity is something that a you know, CFO can help you with. And usually get engaged in all different types. Some might be fixed projects, some might be for a couple hours yeah. a month, and then yeah. some yeah. just more involved, more intense. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and, and that's the, one of the nice things about it is that you have the variety. And rather than, than focusing on one company and one set of uh, issues, and then having it kind of repeat over and over is like you're what you're doing of it on a daily basis is, is constantly changing. So yeah, I've got ongoing clients at you know, one-time projects. So I know on your website you have something called the one-minute CFO, right? Which you you talk sometimes longer than a minute. Well, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever kept it to a minute, <laughs> but on various financial topics. And I went through them, and I think a lot of them are questions that I get from from people I work with that maybe small business owners, yeah. business owners. Can we go over a couple of those? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will preface this by saying that these are things that I've actually, a lot of them come up with like, how does that really work? Right. What is the real answer? Like, I don't know all this stuff off the top of my head. Right. So I'm like, I'm going to do some research. I'm going to put it on a slide deck and I'm going to talk about it. And that's a way of educating myself and also you know, helping other people out to understand things. So this one, and we'll, we'll preface it by saying we're not given, no one's given any legal and tax advice here. No. But the most common one I saw on that list is by far someone starting a new business, what entity structure should they create? Mm-hmm. And then what tax structure right. um, should they create? What And the most common ones I come across are people deciding LLC, S-Corp, or being taxed as an S-Corp, being taxed as a partnership. Right, but right. How does someone make that decision in terms of deciding what entity structure that they should Well, I'll, I'll sound like a lawyer and I'll say it depends. <laughs> really, the most basic legal structure, so to speak, is a sole proprietorship. I start a business. I set no legal entity up. I just start doing business. You can do that. There are benefits to having a legal structure in place, especially as the company grows and you you bring on a payroll and everything, and then you kind of have to. Most people start out as an LLC. I think that the whole S-Corp thing, not to sound too cynical, but I think sometimes it gets pitched by lawyers as something, here's what you really need to do because they can charge an extra fee for for setting up the S-Corp. The benefits to the S-Corp are, and, and just... To expand upon it, it's a the S corp. People confuse an S corp as being a legal status. It's just tax election. You can have an LLC that's an S corp. You can have a, cor- a corporation that's an S corp. So really, you're going to set up an LLC as a legal entity or a corporation. You're going to have um, in some states you can actually have a, a partnership as a as an entity. Let's say you set up an LLC. Really, the the decision around the um, S corp versus partnership versus pass-through entity, it revolves around payroll taxes. That's the big thing in that there are some benefits as an S-corp, some payroll tax benefits that owners, members of an LLC can obtain by uh, creating an S-corp. But then you have to look at the flip side of it. You got to run a payroll, right? You've got to file an 1120S. You have to file a return. You have to maintain... Uh, you, you have to do additional filing. So time, money, you have to weigh that against the, the um, decision. The simplest form, you know, even if you have an LLC as a single person, 
you're just going to run through just your schedule C on your 1040. It's very simple. And what? how easy is it or hard is it if someone sets up a tax status one way and then wants to change it? You can. You, you know, There's a couple of forms that says you're starting from an LLC. Um, you can, uh, there's a couple of forms you file with the, with the IRS to either select an S corp or if you, so you could be taxed as a C corporation, as an LLC, if you want to, um, there may be some benefits to that too, depending on the business. But, um, and there are also, um, there are also some lead time rules. You're really supposed to do it. I think it's, you know, two and a half months for or into the fiscal year where you want to have that election be, be made. But, um, Yes, it's you can do it. You can you can make those those changes. Sometimes there are some uh, um, adjustments to the accounting to the tax books that you have to make if you go from one to the other. But you know that's all something that CPA can investigate for you. It's hard to generalize. It's really situation specific. Sure. The other question I get a lot is, what state should I uh, create my entity in? You know, you hear Delaware, you hear Nevada, great states for doing it. Uh, we live in New Jersey, which doesn't have as good a reputation as being a business-friendly state. Does it make a difference what state you're you're creating your entity in? From my perspective, I would say that's a good question because if you're a small business owner uh, just starting out and you don't think, you know, you're like, all right, I'm going to create this business. It's going to provide me a nice source of income. Um, you know, I'm not trying to take over the world. You set up a entity in your state. Right. There's, you, you don't need to do a, a Delaware LLC, for instance, and you're going to have to deal with paying franchise taxes down there. Plus, you gotta, you know, you're got you a New Jersey business. You're going to have to um, file still a state. A yeah, you're still filing, filing a New Jersey return. Where the, and I'll address Nevada, and actually from a crypto perspective, Wyoming's trying to pick up, make a big name. There are um, you know, regulatory ease and for some of these states the filing fees are lower it's really you know these the states the non-delaware non-local states they're just trying to create a sort of a source of revenue specifically on delaware the reason that a lot of companies at least in the space that i come from the startup space will choose delaware is well first of all it's it's really kind of a brand name thing i worked with a startup uh several years ago that started out as a california corporation when they started tracking VC investments, they said, you, you know what, you know something, we need you to be a Delaware corporation. It's, um, and, there, and the reason that Delaware has a, a such a good reputation is that the, the court system there is very efficient. It, is, it tends to be business friendly in the Chancery court system. And so when disputes arise, they can be processed quickly and efficiently and there's such a large uh, a large case law whatever the term is uh, there's such a, a large uh, amount of case law that that is predictable you know how how things are going to happen but with that said the issues that most small businesses are going to deal with they run into legal problems they're not going to get sued in delaware right might be a, an employee issue and that's going to all be litigated at the local level right big Large companies, when you're dealing with like M and A and you know big multinationals, those kind of issues are going to end up in Delaware courts. Then you want to have that predictability. And again, and like I said, it's a marketing thing too. Public companies, people, people are like, oh yeah, okay, that's a Delaware corporation. I know what that means. It's right. like a branding thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So we talked about earlier 
your expertise in crypto? How did you get that? Was it just something you were interested in investing in, all of a sudden your CPA financial side kind of married the two, or was there another way you got into it? I was interested in more from a you know, a little bit from a technological aspect, okay. you know, math guy, computer guy. I'm like, yeah, this is kind of interesting. Let's see how this works. It is not from an investing standpoint. Okay. I am not an investor. <laughs> I, I rely on people like you to handle that. <laughs> so when I came out here, I moved back to the East Coast in uh, 2015, and I started out consulting. The crypto craze took off in 2017, and I was like, you know, this feels a lot like another tech boom. Like I experienced out in the Silicon Valley. I started going to meetups in the city and talking to people. It was really exciting. One need that I saw was that people from a finance perspective, an accounting perspective, and especially from a tax perspective, didn't understand how this stuff was treated. So I started marketing myself as a crypto tax expert. And that led to some business. I wrote some articles. I sat on panels. I joked that about that time, the cannabis business was getting was taking off. States were starting to legalize. And I decided to build a business around crypto instead of cannabis. <laughs> and I probably should have picked cannabis because that's, from a, from a business perspective, has a little more um, sustainability. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just found that the issues that you run into in the crypto space from accounting and finance were really interesting. So I, I decided to have a portion of my business based on that. What do you see in terms of the next steps with adoption? Of crypto, do you see it taking off, or do you see it kind of? Well, the whole the, when everybody was hearing about Bitcoin a couple of years ago, it was one hundred percent a bubble. Yeah. And it's just like we saw with the dot coms, and you know, people talk about the tulip craze in the Netherlands and all that. But um, it is from a technological perspective, it's very interesting, and it it has some applications. It's it's I mean, for people who don't understand what's underneath it. It's basically a distributed database. So it's you, you have a database, a, a, um, a group of records, data records, and they're replicated all over the world or any servers that hold it, holding that. And what that means is that if you make a change to the database, it gets replicated everywhere, and there's not one specific weakness or point of attack. And it allows for transactions between two parties to be done without an intermediary. So that can be handy. Um, well, it can be handy for uh, money transfers. And that's one of the applications people are looking into. But to answer your question briefly, from a technological stage, it's very early on. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you'll see is over the next five to 10 years, as the technology evolves, um, it's got scalability issues that they'll find more and more ways that are going to be able to use uh, cryptocurrency and the underlying blockchain technology. It's like when the dot-coms were coming out, they were going to take over the world, there's going to be no more retail stores. And, right. you know, it hasn't quite done that, but it's, it's, it's still the role. It's going to kill the banks, right? Right. right. From a tax perspective of it, though, and, and even from the investment tax perspective, is, is it treated just like a, any other capital asset like a stock or pretty much okay. yeah I, I don't want to broadcast this too much except for i'm on a podcast but it really is not the, the, the taxes for it are really not as complicated as people want to make it it's treated as property by the irs and i'm speaking solely domestically it's there's all sorts of um variations when you look at tax treatment around the world but from the irs it's treated as an asset and you're going to report gains and losses on your uh, schedule d and there are some weird situations that come up in cryptocurrency 
if you hold a certain cryptocurrency token and it forks, for instance, you might all of a sudden ha end up with some of another cryptocurrency mm -hmm. token. That doesn't happen really with stocks. Right. You get a stock split. But from the cryptocurrency perspective, how do you handle a situation like that? How do you handle a situation where you buy a token and then the founders take the money and run off to Bermuda and leave the, or some some place that's uh, even harder to extradite people from, take all your money? What do you do? When do you write it off? When is it a loss? Right. So it's there's some funny situations that come up. But generally, it's pretty straightforward. The problem that a lot of people run into is that unlike equity trading, you, know, you may have a, you have a stock trading account. You get a form from the IRS or from the from the company at the end of the, the year that says, here's your gains and losses, here's how you report them. There is very little right. mandatory reporting from these crypto exchanges, and they're all over the place. They're all over the world. They report data in different formats. So what I've, I've done a lot of projects where somebody's like, I need to report my gains and losses. Can you help me? 90% of it is getting all the data together and running it through a tax program, a crypto-specific tax program that cal calculates gains and losses, and you know, figuring out where there might need to be some adjustments. You know, oh, by the way, did you actually give your Cindy three ether in 2018? <laughs> because you're missing three. Ether. What happened? Be a detective. Yeah. So it's uh, and that doesn't really happen in the in the um, you know more formalized markets. Are you seeing, though, a lot more people investing in it than... No, I mean, yeah. it was crazy in, in 2017. People were, were speculating. They were going in, going out, doing a lot of trading. Um, now it's an asset to invest in. It is a store of value, if nothing else. Bitcoin, Bitcoin isn't going away. Bitcoin is a store of value. The, the price fluctuates between 7 and 10 grand. You know, it's still volatile, but it's, it's something to complement your investments not be the entire investment mm -hmm. and as far as a currency do you see someone being able to walk into dunkin donuts and buy a coffee with bitcoin uh specifically from a technology perspective bitcoin isn't very good for that it's slow eventually i i see the potential if they can you know the, if the technology evolves the distributed ledger blockchain technology evolves there may be a role for that but that was one of the things they'd always say it's like oh you know you can use bitcoin to buy a coffee when well, nobody was doing that right it just doesn't really work that well. Yeah. And I guess even, you know, you mentioned outside Bitcoin, but that whole blockchain technology and use, not just from buying things, but storing records, you know, a lot of yeah. see a lot legal, of legal medical, use cases. Side. They're talking about, yeah, data, uh, medical records, voting is one thing. I mean, so I, Iowa yeah. disaster aside, um, you know, there'll be a lot more uses to it that people will find as the technology evolves. Sure. Well, we're just uh, about out of time. How best can someone reach out to you, Brian? If they I would just go um, go out to my website, kttglobal.com, uh, send me an email. Uh, I usually answer really quickly because I, I have a very short attention span. So I, when an email comes in, I'm like, oh, okay, what's that say? And, you know, we go from there. Okay, great. So I'd like to thank you for being on the show. Thank you. And I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in today, and we'll catch you on the next episode of The Agent of Wealth. Thank you for listening to The Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Boutis Financial. 
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.